0: we are given the instruments to play in the great music of god's symphony of creation and of course we have to learn to play well obviously we need freedom to create right to be creative to actually join in this creative process god wills us to be willing participants in his great music
1: Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. This podcast is sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle, a community that supports the mission of Ave Maria University through their monthly donations of $10 or more. If you'd like to support this podcast and the mission of Ave Maria University, I encourage you to visit AveMaria.edu join for more information. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am pleased to be joined by Joseph Pierce, uh, author, uh, writer, speaker, and also visiting professor of literature uh, for this semester and next semester at Ave Maria University. So welcome to the show. It's a joy to be here, Michael. Great. And um, so uh, Joseph Pierce has been a frequent guest on our show, and we've spoken about many things with respect to Chesterton, uh, C.S. Lewis, and Tolkien. Uh, Today, what I wanted to do is the catechism calls for a catechesis on creation. And I want to talk a little bit about the idea of creation, providence, and sin, what the catechism calls for, and then how we can see in kind of Tolkien's background to the Lord of the Rings and his Silmarillion and some other writings that he does Tolkien can kind of be like a guide to recover an authentic understanding of creation. So before we dive into that, I just want to say a couple things about this, what the catechism teaches. So first, the catechism in paragraph 282 says, catechesis on creation is of major importance. It concerns the very foundations of human and Christian life. As it puts it, basically, it tells us where we come from and where we're going. And if we don't know that, we just simply don't know how to act. It says, these questions that Cate- that creation answer, basically, are decisive for the meaning and orientation of our life and action. Uh, so maybe just to start with that kind of idea, right? Catechesis on creation is a major importance. It's foundational for understanding, right, our, uh, how does it put it, the meaning and orientation of our life and actions. So could you just maybe say a word about how you started reading maybe tolkien how you kind of what did you think about creation before you came to the catholic faith what did the catholic faith help you learn about creation and how did tolkien help you to deepen that understanding
0: yeah that's a great question so obviously i'm a convert to the faith and when i was young uh, i believed that uh, the that f- that faith and reason were severed you had to basically choose one or the other you can be religious and therefore irrational or you could be rational and therefore irreligious and it was basically discovering St. Thomas via G.K. Chesterton that, uh, that I came to see faith and reason as being united. So that, uh, if you like, answered the ratio. But as regards creation, I didn't. what I didn't see at first, but also saw, first of all, through Chesterton, God was the great artist, the great poet. And in um, the Silmarillion by Tolkien, God is introduced to us right at the very beginning. In the beginning was the one capital O, Iluvata, the father of all. And he presents immediately to the angelic beings, the firstborn of his creation, the great music. So we have this presentation of the cosmos as a great work of art. So we have God as creator in in the fullest understanding of the words, as, as an artist, as one who brings beautiful, good, and true things into being, and so that this understanding of God as the ultimate poet or composer of the great music of the cosmos—again, C.S. Lewis has Narnia sung into being. So, this understanding of, of God as the God of creation, and not just merely the God of Logos of Ratio, was was very very important to me. And Chesterton, Lewis, and Tolkien were probably the key figures for me in bringing me to that understanding.
1: Yeah, and if we go to Genesis itself. I think there's something about Tolkien's image of music and Lewis's idea of singing that is really helpful in a way because what Genesis does is when Genesis has these lines, right, these famous lines about um, God's creation through his word, right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, right, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light and it was good, right? God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And he separated the waters from the waters, right? God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered. And so, right, God said, let there be lights in the firmament, right? Let there be waters, let there be birds, let there be fish, all these different elements. But in a way, if we think about God speaking creation into being, um, God's speech is not in the past. Right. Because if God's act of creation Creation is not something that happened at the beginning of time. It's happened. It's something that happens at each and every moment, right? God speaks creation into being, but He holds it in being through His very word. And so, I think it's interesting if we think about music. There is something about music that is ongoing, right? If if a song that is sung continues to be uh, resonant, right? And so, the very harmony and fabric of creation is at this very moment being sung and held into being in its kind of fabric by God's ongoing activity. Uh, And I think that's, so it kind of shows in a way, if we think about this in terms of this musical and vocal understandings, then we can think about God creating all things through his word, by his speech, but in a way that doesn't kind of err in the side of God created the world and now we're on our own. So, could you talk a little bit about how that sense of God's ongoing presence as Creator was important for you, having a, a better understanding?
0: Yeah. So, uh, basically, it was a key uh, part of the process of growing, if you like, in a the theological understanding of, of, of God. For me, was was this development of the understanding of omnipresence. Because I, first of all, thought omnipresence meant God was present everywhere. And, of course, he is. But in a much deeper sense, it means everything's present to God. So, as you say, you can't talk about God's actions in the past tense. You know, he, he speaks creation into being at all times. Um, he's Everything is present to him. There's no past, no future, and it's the presence of God. So that's absolutely crucial. And, of course, when we say God doesn't speak prosaically, right mm. so god's speech is a song um so the, so that we can we can talk about the music of the spheres right as um, and again boethius uh in his work De musica speaks about three different types of music right the uh, musica uh, universalis or the musica Mundana, the music of the spheres the music of the cosmos and you have the musica humana with the music of the human soul um and then you have the music instrumentalis how this is voiced forth First of all, by God uh, as, as the great music, but also by us sub-creatively, as Tolkien would say, by us as artists emulating the uh, the Imago day, the imagination, by being creative ourselves. So our own songs, our own creativity, our own works of art, our own works of literature are themselves if like, a shining forth of this of this uh voicing forth by god and god's voice I say we could talk about god speaking but god doesn't speak he sings right Mm -hmm.
1: that that's really a great way of putting it and it is interesting if it is said the catechism in that 282 where it speaks about this catechesis on creation it says this is decisive for finding meaning and orientation in our life and action and in a way if we think about ourselves as this kind of uh, deistic God is a deistic clockmaker who simply winds up the clock and lets it run down, then in a way we're really separated from God. And maybe the other extreme, if we're kind of a pantheistic sense where God and the world are the same, well, in a way that means we always have God's presence, which is good, but the problem is then God can't transcend the world, so God can't save the world, which is bad. So we really do find meaning and orientation by recovering the sense of God as the creator, Who's intimately present. Uh, Aquinas will say that God, in a way, is, is the being that we have is a participation or a sharing in God's own being, which means that God is more, as he puts it, is he's more inmost to ourselves almost than we are to ourselves. Right. Um, so this is kind of a sense that if God is singing creation into being, then I have a kind of purpose, right? Uh, Aquinas will even say that. Everything that God creates has not only his knowledge, but his knowledge of approval, because he not only knew it, but he willed it to be. So if we see ourselves then, not only the world and the cosmos, right, and the Andromeda galaxy or um, these sorts of created things or waterfalls or national parks, but we see ourselves and other human beings, right, as created and loved by God into existence, uh, then, in a way, I I, alre- I don't have to kind of reason to my purpose and meaning. I can just discover it and receive it. So I think that's really a, a very decisive moment. Now, one of the things that we also, though, discover is that God's creation doesn't supplant or replace human agency. I think it was Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the 20th century existentialists, uh, that basically said something along the lines of, you know, there's no room for God and for me in the universe. That if God is in control, then I am not. And I lose my freedom and my agency. Uh, So God is seen as a threat, as a competition to human freedom. So would you talk a little bit about how Tolkien at least gives us an image of God creating you. We're beginning to talk a little bit about this certain sense that human beings, this um, musica humana, or the um, the music that the um, Valar, right, the angels in Tolkien's myth, uh, right. How is it that creation itself has the dignity of sharing in God's creative activity?
0: Yeah. Well, right at the beginning of the uh, the Silmarillion, in what we might call the the uh, Genesis, according to the elves. Um, that we 've given the, the account of, of creation and i 've already said that in the beginning was the one Iluvata, mm-hmm. and he declares the great music, but what the the key thing there is uh, he, he speaks at this point in the in the in the cosmos there's no nothing physical there 's no physical cosmos we haven 't been created this, only only the angelic beings uh, exist um, but he says to them, behold the great music, but he doesn't say hearken doesn 't say listen, he says play." So we have this, this, our own participation in the great music. So we are given the instruments to, to play in the great music of God's symphony of creation. And of course, we have to learn to play well, and we have to want to play well. So, you know, if, if we refuse to learn to play well, or if we want to play badly, uh, we can bring disharmony into the cosmos. And God gives us the freedom to do that because, obviously, we need freedom to love. We also need freedom to create, right, to be creative, to actually join in this creative process. So God wills us to be
1: willing participants in his great music. So within this idea, then, of creation, right, uh, as Tolkien will describe it. And just to read this a little bit, right? Um, there is Eru, the one, who in Arda is called Levatar. And he made the first are the holy ones. They are, sorry, that were the offspring of his thought. And they were with him before aught else was made. He spoke to them, propounding them the themes of music. And they sang before him. And he was glad. Um Right. He even talks about how that then they deepened their understanding, yet, yet ever as they listened, they came to a deeper understanding and increased in unison and harmony. So that over time, right, their singing uh, begins to right, develop the music. And I think this is maybe something that's uh, maybe counterintuitive. If God is perfect and he creates, then how could he create angels that Further, his own creation.
0: Yeah, because I'd say that he he wants us to be in his image. Mm-hmm. Uh, and insofar as he wants us to be in his image, he wants us to be like him. And one of the things about him is the fact that he is the creator. So we also have to be creators, or as Tolkien would say, sub-creators. And this is a crucial distinction. Yeah. So I, I sometimes talk about, and you, you, can, you can derive all this from reading Tolkien's work, it's what I call Tolkien's philosophy of myth. So the love of wisdom be found through the power of story. But what we can derive from that is what I call a hierarchy of creative value. And at the top is the creator, you know, God Himself. And uh, below that is creation. And these are things made by God himself, ex nihilo, from nothing. And the reason that Tolkien distinguishes that, creation, from sub-creation, as he calls it, is we are sub-creators, not creators. God can bring things forth from nothing, ex nihilo. We can only make things from other things that already exist. That's why it's sub-creation. And you can also tell from Tolkien there are two types of sub-creation. There's sub-creation to the glory of God, which is true art. And then there's subcreation for the use of man, utility, which we might call technology. And these are all goods, right? But obviously, using our subcreative gifts to the glory of God is a higher use of it than using them for, for our own utility. Um, but then, of course, the other thing about us, because we've fallen, is that subcreation, subcreativity can be poisoned by pride. So we can use our creative gifts to actually bring discord and disharmony into the cosmos as well as uh, participating in God's uh, providential music.
1: Yeah, and that idea of art then, in a way, what you're really getting at is the notion of worship, right, that human beings and the angels have this odd capacity that allows them to use their creative free gifts to give back to God creation in some form or other, through their own praise, through their own actions Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Working and tilling and keeping the garden, but taking all of that and then offering that on the Sabbath of worship. So, still doing things that both are oriented to the world, but that all of those things can be oriented to God. And so, as this uh, Silmarillion, though, describes it, I think it's really beautiful just to listen a little bit to the words that he describes, right? So, he's talking to the angels again. He says, Of the theme that I have declared to you, I will now make I will now that you will make a harmony together a great music right I have since I have kindled you with the flame imperishable you shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme each with his own thoughts and desires if you will and I will sit and hearken and be glad that through you great beauty has been wakened into song so this capacity of the angels and of human beings through our own Thoughts and devices, right? Our own creativity that we can sing God's song back to Him, and somehow render it more complete. That, um, as a Aquinas will say, when God creates causes, they truly are causes. Uh, so this is uh, technically with the understanding of secondary causality, instrumental causality. That God is not in competition with the world. So when He creates, truly become causes. But I love the way that Tolkien kind of just expresses this right that they get to sing things into being based upon their own thoughts and devices so within that of course that begins to create though the problem right and and i think this is the other issue within our age is that many people have a hard time acknowledging creation at least in part because they see the presence of sin and evil how could a good god created a world that has gone so wrong Uh, this I I think I would say that at least when I was you know a young man when I was an atheist as a you know a teen and that time period in my life I was that seemed to me to be kind of obvious the world was I had a kind of an evolutionary mindset the world evolved for no reason right randomly and the sheer evil within the world was a sure sign that it didn't come from this, uh, at least what I had heard about Christianity up until that point in my life. Uh, so, could you say a little bit more about how Tolkien then introduces within this theme and this kind of angelic choirs of creation um, the theme of sin and the fall?
0: Yes. Yeah, so basically, that we our our creative gifts, our, our subcreative gifts, are meant to be, as you as you rightly say. Uh, a song of praise. Um, we are meant to give back to the giver of the gift the fruits of the gift given. So, so true art should be an act of praise. It should be a prayer, but it requires will. And again, we, 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 we God, thanks be to God. Did not create us as mere automatons, as robots. He, he made us capable of loving and subcreating. And in order for that to be possible, he had to make us free. Uh, and of course, if we have freedom, there's there's the uh, potential to refuse to choose the good, and that's basically that that's what pride does. The absence of humility causes us to refuse to choose the good, and that brings disharmony into the cosmos. So we see that in the Silmarillion, Melkor, the mightiest of the angels, who's basically uh, he is Satan. It's the, the Elvish name for Satan, Melkor, the mightiest of the angels, refuses to play in accordance with the score. With the providential design of the great music, and wants to bring his own angry, powerful, dark, prideful themes in. So, so this discord enters the cosmos, and is and his his are loud and and about self empowerment. But God actually, at first, he smiles. You know, this is an act of disobedience. But he then weaves that back into the great music, and then in the end, he he confronts Melkor and says that Melkor has to understand and we have to understand this is applicable to us as well as Satan, that there's nothing that we can do, however uh, evil or wicked, that that brings discord into the great music of God's, divine providence that he will not in some way weave back into the grand design of the score itself in ways beyond our imagining or beyond the imagining of satan in other words god can and does and will uh, bring good from evil and and ultimately you know we see it so you know, talking talks about the eucatastrophe the the good turn the sudden joyous turn that comes from disaster so we have the uh we have the eucatastrophe of the redemption as a consequence of the fall. We have the eucatastrophe of the resurrection as a consequence of the crucifixion. So we see God in practice doing this, bringing ineffable good from unutterable evil.
1: So this is described by Tolkien in this element, right, that uh, it came into the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Elevatar, Right. For he sought therein to increase the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. Uh, And maybe we, within at least this providential order that is the only order that we know, that to have freedom to love is this risk of evil.
0: Yeah, because to love is to freely choose to give yourself to
1: another. But you can freely choose to refuse to do that, yeah. And that's the act of pride. Yes, and so you can see right from the very beginning, right? Malkor is basically setting himself up as a, as a, as a rival god. Um, the self discovering itself as a self, right, can see then want to be the center. And just t- two themes that that I want to uh, develop is this idea. Of of this musical harmony that you have the original harmony you have then the discord, which is not really original but it's a a twisting of the original themes, and because it's not actually original but it's just a twisting of the original themes, then the original creator can create a whole, you know, a a third wave of music that somehow reharmonizes the whole. And he even mentions here where he said, "Right, never since have the Anwer made anything like to this music, the original music, though it has been said that a greater still shall be made before the Ilavatar by the choirs of Anwir and the children of Ilavatar after the end of days. So somehow the final harmony is suggested that it may be greater than even the original because in the final harmony, even the greatest discord will be overcome.
0: Yes, and obviously this is a vision of, of, uh, of heaven, it's you know, St. John's revelation, is that following the whole playing itself out of the great music of of cosmic reality, we have the ultimate reality, which is the eternal presence of God, which is heaven. And there, there will be no discord, there will be no evil. It's the consummation of everything into the fullness of the good, which is God himself. So so the, the singing of men and angels, and Tolkien would say in terms of his myth, elves, you know, before God, uh, is the final consummation of of this new music, which supersedes the great music of of we're experiencing
1: what we call time and space. So one final question before we uh, get to our break in a couple minutes, but I guess it'd be this, is that, so it's pretty clear that you have the one, you have God, Uh, God creates, right, the heaven and the earth, um, invisible and invisible. So he creates the angels first, you have uh, the highest of the angels, Lucifer, who turns. Right. Um, so we have the same thing: he becomes Melkor, he becomes Satan. Uh, you have then the Manwe, who's the Michael character, the who who's not necessarily the highest by nature, but becomes the highest because he most aligns and understands the will of God. So, in a certain sense, why why is it helpful to enter into kind of holkians world where he reimagines the creation story and the fall story from our christian faith in this secondary world of his own imagining of myth
0: well first of all of course we are made in the image of god uh, as creators or more technically sub-creators so we are meant to sub-create and one way we sub-create is by the telling of stories you know and and uh these stories are fictional, in one sense, they didn't happen in historical uh, fact, but they they convey great truth. So again, this has been sanctified by Christ in the parables, you know. So why does Jesus Christ invent a fictional character who 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 runs away from his home in order to enjoy himself and then comes back? this towel between his legs, you know, the the, the prodigal son story, because it teaches us valuable lessons analogically. So what what Tolkien is doing is showing us something to make us see something fresh. So in his essay on fairy stories, he talks about the necessity of of recovery, of regaining, and he hyphenates it and makes us think about it, regaining a clear view. And he gets this from from Chesterton uh, and others. But you know, Chesterton was always talking about, you you have to stand on your head to see something from a fresh, angle so sometimes you know we, we we can read genesis and not really think about it uh and take it for granted because we've read it too often or I, I thought about it perhaps not enough and and then we read uh, the, the tolkien's a- analogy of genesis uh in the Silmarillion, and it's, we're seeing genesis again from a fresh angle we've regained
1: the clear view and i think that's the purpose yeah, there's that powerful image from c.s lewis in A surprised by joy uh from his childhood when he says that his when he was maybe about 4, Warney his older brother is about 6, he makes him a toy garden and he remembers it his whole life that somehow this toy garden that his brother had made in a tin box with this little stuff somehow awakened in him he began to see the garden but somehow he said that seeing the representation of the garden allowed him to discover the freshness that the actual garden didn't fully, right? And so somehow this sense in which, right, we not only are creative beings and therefore it's appropriate for us to tell stories and to imitate God's story. And another way, we're also beings, though, who have a hard time really encountering reality, yeah, and also
0: we find that because of because of the the weak our, our weakness our inherent weakness our brokenness that we find it difficult to continue to see things repeatedly mm. freshly. So if we see things something too often, we cease to see it at all. So that's why we have to see it from a new angle. And a story. Can allow that offers an, an analogy yeah. can help us to see the original, the primary reality yeah. more clearly. So that again, this is how the Silmarillion can help us to see Genesis in, a, in you know freshly, um, whereas otherwise we might be just taking it for granted. Yeah.
1: So we're going to take a break now. When we get back, I want to focus on uh, so Tolkien has this letter from 1951 where he di- kind of describes why he thinks all of the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings are all one, um, and and interestingly, in a way he kind of sees them all as one through some kind of, they're united in a certain sense uh, because of a problem, right. <laughs> something that he will call, right, the fall. And so I think as a way of further diving into the catechesis on creation, we really then have to consider not only God's providence, but the, the way in which our providential order is intertwined now with this discordant note, this fall, Uh, Tolkien will even go so far as to say, right, you simply can't have a story without a fall. So let's uh, talk a little bit more about that after the break, indeed.
2: You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University and sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle. Through their generous donations of $10 or more per month, Annunciation Circle members directly support the mission of AMU to be a fountainhead of renewal for the church through our faculty, staff, students, and alumni. To learn more, visit avemaria.edu join. Thank you for your continued support. And now let's get back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show. I'm Michael Dauphine, your host. And today we have Joseph Pierce with us. And we've been talking about this notion of creation, providence, and sin, and how Tolkien's writings, especially at the beginning of the Silmarillion, uh, can help us to recover those understandings. Uh, We began with uh, considering uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 282. Catechesis on creation is of major importance. Discovering where we come from and where we are going is decisive for the meaning and orientation of our life and actions. Now, as the Catechism goes further, we have two ideas that I think are very important. Right? The first one is the idea that God creates a world in process. Right? He creates a world, as the Catechism puts it, in a state of journeying, in statu via. that creation is not, as, he puts, as the Catechism puts it, creation has its own goodness and proper perfection, but it did not spring forth complete from the hands of the Creator. It was created in statu vie, in a state of journeying toward an ultimate perfection. So, in a way, you can think about this is really the risk. In a way, the risk of the journey, the risk of evil, but also, therefore, the risk of goodness and beauty. Uh, and then it goes into the providence and the scandal of evil, right? Why does evil exist? Uh, And the Catechism has this kind of beautiful line there's not a single aspect of the Christian message that is not, in part, an answer to the question of evil. So then I think, in some ways, really trying to have a serious, thoughtful understanding of evil, the fall, is simply necessary because if we don't get that understanding of the fall proper, then we will ascribe evil to creation itself or to God, um, or in a way to our end. So life becomes hopeless um, or we, in a way, become doomed, right? Really two ways of putting it, whether or not we come from evil or we're heading to evil. So this is what Tolkien writes then. How does Tolkien help us understand this? Well, in this letter from 1951 uh, that he wrote to Milton Waldman, in which he is trying to show that the Silmarillion and all these earlier tales are one with the Lord of the Rings. Anyway, so this is what he says, though. He says, right, his basic myth or fairy tale is is it's not an allegory, but it must use allegorical language. So it's not a technical allegory, but it is allegorical. Um, He says it's mainly considered with fall, mortality, and the machine. He says, with the fall, as he's going to talk a little bit more about that, because right in the fall, something always goes wrong, um, right? In almost every instance, the moment there is a blessing or a new creation, there is some kind of fall and disruption. But he also then speaks about mortality, uh, that within the world, there is somehow the desire that ought to, um, you know, that ought to lead us to do great things for God, but somehow becomes disordered. And he says, especially because after the fall with mortality, then we seek to find ways on our own to solve the problem of the fall and mortality in a way, right? We try to overcome sin and death on our own. And that's when he moves to what he calls the machine or what he will also call power or simply Magic, right? We use power to try to overcome the fall and mortality, or we use the machine in modern terms, or he says it's the machine is basically closely related to magic. Both are simply ways of trying to manipulate the world for power. Um, So, could you say a little bit about? What does Tolkien mean by the fall and mortality and the machine?
0: Yes, so uh, these are, uh, as he says there, um, he he also says in a letter, someone wrote to him following the publication of Lord of the Rings, is the Lord of the Rings an allegory of atomic power? Uh, And he said, no, no. But he said it is an allegory of power, Mm. uh, particularly power usurped for domination. And he said more than that, it's an allegory of death and immortality. So in this same letter, he basically echoes what he says in this letter. The two key themes, first of all, are power particularly power usurped for domination so there's there's the, the the only he says in that letter that the only way that power is used in in his work in a positive sense is the power of God and those angels who serve God and therefore also by extension those beings such as ourselves who serve God so power is only good insofar as it's virtuous in insofar as it's in, in accordance with the will of of god himself all other power um particularly all efforts at self-empowerment uh which is basically the, the goal of pride and this is sort of uh brought to uh to should we say cankerous fruit uh in the ideas of nietzsche that there's no such thing as good and evil it's only about power and self-empowerment So that basically is exactly what Tolkien's addressing here, that the fall is a consequence of our desire to be our own gods, that we want to empower ourselves in defiance of the will of God. And that's the way that power is used. And death and immortality, that that, that we have to to understand that, again, in in Christian art and theology and, and symbolism, There's a recurring memento mori, right? The reminder of death. And always in Christian art, and that includes the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, which is Christian art, the memento mori, the reminder of death, should remind us of the four last things death itself, and then judgment that follows death, and then either heaven or hell. So, in that sense, when he says, which he does, that death is a gift of God get the gift of God to man two things you have to understand about that a gift is something given it doesn't necessarily mean it's a it's, it's a reward right um it's something given and it's given for a purpose that but basically we are meant to see our own limitations right We are not god and and death our own mortality is meant to bring us to our senses. To remember that we will die that when we die we'll be judged and following that judgment we'll either be with God in heaven or we'll be absent God will be absent from us for, for eternity so the, the reason that death is a, a key factor in the Lord of the Rings uh is exactly because that me- memento mori is is necessary for
1: us yeah, so this idea then of the gift of death that's really fascinating to think about that sense in which. Death is given, uh, right? It's it's uh, not always welcome, but it's a, it's given to human beings uh, that we may recognize in a way that we've gone astray, uh, that we may recognize that our only hope is in God, that we may recognize our our fundamental impotence or yeah, impotence to do the one thing that we would love to do, which is to love God and love our neighbor. For all eternity. So, But one of the problems then as, as the story unfolds and as some of the examples he gives, uh, we end up, especially I think with the men, the, the Numenar as it's described, he says that instead of seeing death as a gift from God, which we will use to uh, somehow journey home to God to recognize that this world is not our home, uh, that we are created to use this world to come home to God. The problem is we begin to see death not as a gift, but death as almost like a new God to whom we will sacrifice everything in the name of escaping it. right And he describes this, I think, when the, as, as he describes it, the early um, you know, the, the early men, the Numenorians, as I think, right? He says that they have this desire to escape death and therefore produced a cult of the dead. They lavished wealth and art on tombs and memorials. They made settlements on the west shores, but these became strongholds and factories of lords seeking wealth. The Numenorians became tax gatherers, carrying off over the sea even more and more goods in their great ships. They began the forging of arms and engines. So, speak a little bit more about how that um, that the desire to escape death can create what Tolkien calls a cult of the dead.
0: Yeah. So basically, you, you you said it there that if 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 death becomes the 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 one thing to be feared, the danger is it becomes the one god to be feared, uh, and therefore we sacrifice things to uh, death itself or to the dead. So you have, you have you have this cult of the death. But what I what, what we, we need to see is what Tolkien does then. He says it's, it's a, an allegory of death and immortality, so deathlessness. So he allows us to do, we talked in the first part about how the Chestertonian way of seeing things is to make us stand on our heads. So how can we see death uh, in a fresh light? Well, let's present uh, a race of beings who don't die. Right. Let, let, let us, let's, let's have uh, uh, elves. Who are immortal and if we were deathless if we got our wish our, our, our sinful wish to be immortal not to die to spend that forever for millennia and millennia and millennia in this veil of tears right in this land of exile what would it how would it feel so it's actually the, the it's the elves that, that say that death is the gift of god to man because the elves are are trapped in this veil of tears in this land of exile for forever they're immortal and and they um know that when when men die they a they they're going somewhere else uh so that escaping this this veil of tears because the as Galadriel says that she, uh, the elven queen that she and her husband have the long defeat for ages of this world and have won many fruitless victories in other words if the fabric of the cosmos is broken and fallen uh, evil cannot be defeated uh, within time right the final defeat over evil is beyond time so if you're within time you are living this long defeat And Tolkien echoes that in one of his letters, where he says that as a Christian, I see history as the long defeat with only occasional glimpses of final victory. And those glimpses of final victory are beyond the world, right? So the elves are stranded in time. So Tolkien allows us to see, don't be so um, desirous of immortality, because that thing which you would see as a gift
1: actually could be a curse. Yeah, that's really a beautiful way of putting it. In some ways, the kind of the nature of humanity gets the children of Elevatar, as are described here, are both the elves, right, and man. So you have both the elves that have immortality, but then human beings that have death. Uh, but in a way, the elves are our kind of, that's our wishful thinking. And even today, this there's a huge amount of uh, technology, a uh, huge amount of investment that's somehow trying to extend our lives, Almost any you know article that says you know what's the secret to living an extra five years or what's the secret to longevity? What should you eat? What should you not eat? You know, uh, what if, if there's a you know is there screening you should get? in? and not that these things are bad because our earthly life is a good, uh, but when it becomes the good or when we want to freeze ourselves so we could wake up in five hundred years, um, Lewis in one of his Chronicles of Narnia in the Magician's nephew. Uh, at, at one scene, Diggory and Polly, but Diggory is with the basically kind of like the the, the tempter, the temptress, uh, Queen Jadis in the story, but the Satan figure. And uh, she, you know, she offers him this uh, apple or this fruit that will give him you know, everlasting life. Uh, and he says, right, why would I want to keep on living after everyone I know has died? I'd rather die and go to heaven, right? And so that sense in which what would you rather do? die and wake up in 500 years right or would you rather die in god and go to heaven and a lot of people today, i think would kind of say they'd rather die and wake up in 500 years but what would that be yeah i mean you know, it, that, that would be right all aw- that would be a that would be a nightmare
0: it, it would and that's the trouble of course yeah. if we don't choose heaven we choose hell and and, and that that's the trouble Is most people don't be- if you don't believe in god and you don't believe in heaven then what do you have left you have what you think is immortality, but when actually just be everlasting uh, hell, whether it's in time um, or
1: whether it's beyond time. Yeah, and this I think also is that uh, the catechism, when it talks about hell, speaks about it's the definitive self-exclusion from God. It's not so much that God casts us into hell, although that language is used. It's kind of that we cast ourselves in hell. We get what we want, but what we want is just this life and more of it and so and over time it becomes less and less satisfying right that and this is already something we experience within our own lives often if people have certain kinds of right you know uh, unhealthy pleasures they are short their short-term gratification actually becomes long-term pain and long-term unhappiness Uh, and in a way if you extend that that really becomes this never-ending immortality of separation from God and and an inability to somehow overcome or to forget or to turn away from the hurts and wounds of our past and of our own things that we've done to hurt and wound ourselves and other people. Uh, exactly uh absolutely and we see it
0: in in tolkien's work because uh you know what happens if we if we if we give given immortality or, or, or a suggestion of it so for instance the ring that uh, doesn't doesn't convey immortality to mortals but it does prolong their lives but what sort of, what sort of prolongation is it it's basically a fading so that Bilbo can say that yes he's living uh much longer than he should do but it's like um Butter being spread over too much bread, right? Mm-hmm. That basically he's going, he's getting thinner and thinner and thinner. He's sort of fading. Uh, it's not, it's not anything that brings any satisfaction. And then other, they, so you, you have the ring wraiths. These are mortal men that uh, have sold their souls, and they're now doomed to be servants of the devil forever. Um, and Gollum, right? Who's basically addicted to the power of the ring, to the power of sin, and he shrivels and shrinks into a shrunken wreck that's completely addicted to his own sinfulness. We we, we seem to forget this, and Paul tells us basically that sin is addictive, that we become slaves to sin. And the whole idea that we can live a sinful life because it's an expression of our freedom is a lie, which we must know ourselves if we try to put it into
1: practice, because we become addicts. And who is really going to
0: say that an addict
1: is free? So I think in these different ways, we really see how Tolkien begins to try to emphasize this sense of, right, the fall – mortality, um, the machine, magic, power as an attempt to solve the problem of the fallen immortality, sin, and death uh, that's rooted in a discordant, disordered desire for the really the aggrandizement of the self on the self's own terms rather than the surrender of the self to God, our creator, on his terms. So before we finish, I wanted to kind of come back then to the full, in a way, kind of circle of providence where we do have this promise in Tolkien's, uh, you know, at, at the beginning of the Silmarillion that, that somehow the final harmony will be even greater. And, and I also think when he has that quote about the final victory, that we get glimpses of final victory. And, and I recall at least one version I saw of that where he says, you know, more often in fiction, you know, that like, and I think he sees his own work that in the Lord of the Rings, we're supposed to get not only a glimpse of the fall and a mortality and of the ring and power and machines and, and magic that's destructive. We're also supposed to get this glimpse of final victory. Uh, so could you say maybe a word about how like this focus on the fall actually frees us to discover that final victory and maybe some ideas that Tolkien uh, leaves before us? Yeah, first of all, if I if I may say, as a lover of language, that I enjoyed your uh,
0: alliteration, this uh, disordered, discordant desire. I like that. Thank you very much. Um, I should probably steal that myself at some point. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so you know, Oscar Wilde you said that we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars so in other words that we have to first of all be aware of the gutter and so the, you know, it, it, there's no doubt at all that Lord of the Rings has a pervasive darkness as a backdrop right the the, the presence of evil um, but that's in order for allow us to actually first of all recognize the fact that we're in a fallen cosmos we are in the gutter right we're, we're not in heaven but we don't we should not be faced down in the gutter if we face down in the gutter we'll have nothing but nothing um, but we're meant to look up so we see the words of Samwise gamji you know uh, above all shadows rides the sun and that's one of the darkest moments in the story shelob's in the background there uh that frodo is apparently dead it looks like that whole uh the whole quest has failed and it'd be very easy to have him to sit down get his head down and despair right to lose all hope but what does he do he looks up And he says, above all shadows rides the sun. So what the Lord of the Rings allows us to do is say, yes, of course, there's a pervasive darkness in this broken, fallen cosmos. But we need to look up. All right, again, the the Greek word anthropos, to turn upwards, to look up, to gaze upwards. We have to do that. And I think the Lord of the Rings shows us that. And that is itself the glimpse of final victory. As soon as we look up and see that above all shadows, above all evil, above all darkness rides the sun, the son of God in this case, right? Then we realize that all we have to do is to be good soldiers for Christ in the war, and you know, we we, we are, while we're in time, we with the church militant, the church at war, we church at war, we're Milus Christi. right? we're in a war against darkness, but we have to keep our eyes on heaven. And if we keep our eyes on heaven, that's the glimpse of final victory. Then the final victory
1: will be ours. And I think that's what the Lord of the Rings is showing us. Yeah, I think that's it. Really, is kind of beautifully put that sense of it's when we actually recognize that. Our situation is as bad as it is. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, we, faith has to recognize the bankruptcy of our own efforts. If we don't really recognize that, actually, when I really try to be as good as I can and I try to do the right thing, I still don't very well. I I just, and, and so if I can begin to see, well, like what's wrong with the world, as Chesterton once said, right, I am. So that's why I know that we can't solve all the world's problems is because I'm part of the problem. And so when I begin to discover that, and then, of course, I look at the cosmos and see that, wait a second, our entire cosmos, the entire created cosmos, as we understand it, the visible creation, at least, of the earth and our own experience is almost like was created off kilter because it was already created with the um, discordant note of Satan and the fallen angels. So we cannot expect redemption to come from ourselves. We cannot expect it to come from other human beings, from societies, from political movements. These can all be good. We can all work on them, right? We all ought to you know, try to have houses that don't leak. We all ought to try to have judges that don't accept bribes. I mean, these are all good things. But they are all going to fail at giving us what we need. Uh, Pope Benedict, in his uh, 2000, and I think it was 2008 encyclical on uh, Space Alvi, uh, and he on I Hope We Are Saved, he says basically, right, to believe in the, just to really, he says, to think rightly about the world, we have to recognize no political solution will ever be ultimate. And the most dangerous will be, will be the ones that say they are. And so if we see that then, I think we have that freedom in a way to look back to the only one who can actually restore us and save us, who is the one who created us. Right? And that's why I think it was so important in the Gospels and in Paul to show that Jesus Christ is not simply our Savior, our Redeemer, which he is through the resurrection. He is also the same one one through whom the world was created right so that our creator has become our redeemer and our redeemer is our creator and in that sense then we can truly right cast ourselves into the arms of the creator as first peter 5 7 uh, say so um is there maybe just one final you know image that that sticks with you when you think about this whole emphasis on creation fall um, redemption and uh, in from Tolkien that you would like to leave your students with or your listeners today?
0: Well, I think the most important thing, and you mentioned about the fact that we, uh, we can't gain our own salvation, right? Self-empowerment is, is, is a dead end literally um that the talking the, the, the shows us in the story that we can, in order to in order to be first we have to be laughed we have to lay down our lives so the freedom only comes through surrender and that's why at the end of this one of the, the greatest moments in the whole lord of the rings is the fact that that frodo baggins cannot Defeat the power of evil by himself. He can't cast the ring into Mount Doom without some providential intervention, right? Um, he needs the grace of God, and that comes as a reward for his sparing Gollum's life. So, this is this deep providential uh, design going on, but it requires
1: our surrendering to the will of God that we may actually be genuinely free. Well, that's so well put. So, thank you so much for that uh, great insight. And again, recovering this catechesis on creation. Providence and Sin, with uh, Tolkien as as a guide. Uh, so thank you, Joseph Pierce, for being on our show. Really appreciate your time with us. My pleasure as always. Yes. For and uh, for listeners or viewers who'd like to learn more about Joseph and his work, uh, you can go to, is it josephpierce.co? Good guess. J-P-E-R-C-E.co. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And thank you again for listening to the Catholic Theology Show. We appreciate your support.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.